Hi, everyone. Welcome back to For the Girls. Today, we are joined by someone we have admired since day one at For the Girls, and that is Christina Manulides. Christina is a computational fluid dynamics engineer for Alfa Romeo F1 Team Orland and has had an impressive career in motorsports, which we will dive into during this episode. She also joined Racing Pride as an industry ambassador in 2021 and is now on its board of directors. So, Christina, it's so wonderful to have you here with us. Before we get into your background, we'd love to just first ask, what actually is a computational fluid (laughs) engineer and what is your job at Alfa Romeo F1 Team Orlin like now? Yeah, so um, it's interesting because I also have to explain this to like family members and stuff. So (laughs) I think I've got it down to a very simple explanation of Um, essentially what we do is the computer simulation side of aerodynamics. So if you imagine that in Formula One, we test parts uh, in the wind tunnel, it's essentially a virtual wind tunnel. So before we decide to uh, create the parts and test them physically, which is obviously quite expensive and takes some time, uh, we simulate it on the computer. And my group is responsible for the simulation, the Um, the software side, the process side, and also the correlation. So we check the quality of the simulation results against both the track data and the wind tunnel data to make sure that people aren't on a daily basis just simulating the wrong thing. That is so cool. That was a really good explanation. (laughs) (laughs) That is a well-practiced pitch for relatives and friends who have no idea. (laughs) I, I still think there's a bit of confusion. I've had one of my friend's parents ask me, so you get your hands dirty? Are you a mechanic? And I'm like, no, that's not what it is. But yeah, I think there's still um, sort of a misconception about um, what is engineering. And it's not just getting your hands dirty or being a mechanic or anything like that. It's also, you know, a lot of people just sitting behind a computer and clicking buttons. So yeah, there's um, all types of, of engineering for sure. So how did you get into this? Uh, Talk us through your background. How did you get into the world of F1? How did you get into engineering? Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I grew up in Melbourne in Australia. And growing up, we've always had the race there. And I kind of saw it all the time. I mean, it was a bit strange because it was kind of intertwined into so many aspects of my life. So I live about, you know, in a straight line, eight kilometers from where the track was. So you could hear it, especially... Wow. You know, in the olden days when the engines were a lot louder, you heard the cars, you heard also the supercars, the V8s, and, you know, you kind of knew it was there even if you weren't watching it or you were in traffic because of it or something like that. <laughs> and then I also played football, um, soccer. I played soccer at a club where we trained on one of the pitches uh, on on the track sort of area at Albert Park. Albert Park Lake. Oh, and, that's so cool. And the pit building was our change room. So no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of everywhere. And and like the club stadium was at the track. And also I went to school from 15 at a school within the track bounds. So we didn't get to go to school on the Thursday or Friday because, because it was, you know, blocked off. Um, so it was kind of everywhere. So I was clearly aware of what was going on. And um, I don't know, I think you know, a lot of people grow up and they want to be what their parents are. And my family are architects and I have an older sister who became an architect. And 
<laughs> I just knew it wasn't for me, you know, it was very far from, I wasn't very much a creative person. I was always like the little maths and science nerd in the family. <laughs> so yeah, it just kind of made sense to me. Why would I not want to combine that aspect with something that I, I really enjoyed because I, you know, grew up watching the races, going to the races um, and kind of seeing on, on TV race engineers is basically all you saw you saw race engineers and pit crew members and I was like yeah I really want to be the person who sits on the pit wall because that's all I thought there was <laughs> right but there's so much more than what you are shown and I think we see a little bit of that now with things like Netflix drive to survive people get a bit more of an insight but really not uh, the full insight of how many careers there really are so I grew up thinking I really want to be a race engineer and here I was the young girl in Australia looking up on the internet how how to become F1 engineer oh. and I mean and you did it oh my gosh yeah and that's the thing like there was not a whole lot of information um I I remember at one point I actually even bought a book that was about uh sort of Formula One and then in the back it had a list of universities that you could study things related to. Oh, wow. <laughs> like I bought a book. How crazy is that? And, you know, in the end, I sort of looked at people's profiles and interviews and found where these people went to university and thought, okay, this is what I would have to do. I would have to go to a university in the UK where they have motorsport specific courses and obviously all the teams are there. Well, majority of the teams are right. there. And so that's what I did. I think my parents kind of knew if they didn't let me go, I would have resented them forever. <laughs> and so off I went to England to study. And I mean, I had a really great time as well. I must say, I think the the university culture in, in the UK is so different to what it is yeah. in Australia. Um, you know, people live on campus, which you don't tend to do in Australia because there's so many universities just where you live and so you just kind of stay at home or live with friends and and it was just so different and to be able to experience that I I really enjoyed it um but then obviously there's a lot more industry ties with the universities and if you want to go for an interview you're already there so right I think this was you know before everyone was kind of used to online meetings and stuff so mm -hmm. it wasn't really a thing that people spoke about you kind of had to be there to be at an interview so um, when you when you got to university, is that when you realize that like wow, there's so much more to Formula One than being exactly. a pilot engineer? I and this is the thing, you know, my course was pretty general in the sense that you did like aerodynamics, you did um, sort of stress analysis stuff and dynamic vehicle dynamics, um, also electronics and also practical things. We actually had like an auto lab where we had old race cars that you would wow. take take apart and. You know, I saw so many different things and even at the time I kind of I've taken so many different paths, especially while I was in university. At one point I thought maybe I want to be a design engineer because I really enjoyed, you know, when you're studying, the thing you enjoy the most is the easiest thing and <laughs> everyone enjoyed playing on the computer rather than being in maths class. And so I actually did a one-year industrial placement in, in between my um, degree 
where I was a design engineer and I'm so grateful I did that because I realized that I didn't actually enjoy doing it when I had to do it every day. Right. Mm. And so it was kind of like this process of elimination just by trying things. What did I like and what didn't I like? Um, and even, you know, my, my undergrad research project was about, uh, it was a vehicle dynamics project about uh, lap time simulation. And so it was kind of still on that sort of side of things. And then I went and did a research master's and I started looking into CFD and wind tunnel testing. And, and then after that, uh, I started working for a automotive company uh, in the vehicle dynamics department. And it was just, I mean, it was such a great experience because I got to see what it was like to work in a really big organization yeah. where you kind of are very limited in scope of what you do because there's so many people. So everyone has less responsibility. Yeah. You have your little niche. Exactly. And what I realized from that is, especially when you work on cars or planes, that the sort of project lead time is really long compared to motorsport where we're talking like one two week turnaround on things and maybe some long-term projects in the back so it was good that I experienced that because I knew that very early on in my career that that wasn't what I was looking for and I definitely did want to pursue motorsports but I think all these things sort of kind of slowly pieced together after that I worked for a software company which uh, were actually the CFD company I used for my uh, master's thesis and then from there we had motorsport clients and I slowly started seeing more of F1 I we went we worked with about four teams at the time so I got to see a lot of offices and processes and what everyone does and after a few years I just kind of thought well I'm here and this is what I've come to do and I really should pursue it. And uh, yeah, and then I got an offer in Switzerland and I always say who turns down an offer to move to Switzerland <laughs> and that's it's sort of dream. how it all came about. But, you know, I have a lot of young girls who always ask me like, how, how do you figure out what you want to do? And there's so many different things you can do. How do I find out about them? And I always just say, you know, you've just got to try because until you try it, you'll never know. Uh, so take any opportunity you can, but, the problem I see is there's just still such a lack of information. You know, there's there's not a lot of information about all the different kind of jobs. You tend to still see from the outside uh, a very small subset of jobs. Um, and I think, you know, I hope things like uh, Drive to Survive start to also focus on these sorts of things, like attracting more people, not just as fans, but into the sport to work in the sport or to to want to be part of it somehow by showcasing more sides of it and and more people and their kind of stories because it's super fascinating when you when you hear people's stories as well everyone's had a different journey especially because everyone's coming from different countries with different sort of educational systems and yeah I think there's obviously still a long way to go to make it more accessible and I think that's one of the the really big limitations is that f1 in particular is such a small bubble and they kind of like to keep it that way and unfortunately it doesn't make it any easier to get it in, to get to get into the sport yeah totally i 
a comment or a question sort of on the your point about the educational systems and the differences there, like coming from the States, even the UK educational system is so different. Like you mentioned being able to take a lot of like applicable classes and try a lot of different things sort of with F1 as a career in mind. Whereas I feel like in the States, it's it's very much geared towards like liberal arts educations, abstract academic learnings, and then you decide later on what your career should be. And there are trade-offs to both, right? Like mm. I think in the UK system or other systems, you have to know earlier on maybe what you're looking for, but it also gives you a lot more opportunity to like do hands-on stuff. Did you feel like that made a big, big difference for you? I think it's a matter of the person and sort of you know, whether you do know what you want to do or not, because I think it's really interesting you said that uh, because when I was leaving Australia, they'd actually just started changing in some of the universities, the model in the sense that they move towards more like what you described, where you sort of generalize and and you do sort of an arts type um, introduction. And then as you go on, you start to decide what you want to specify in or specialize in sorry and uh I knew what I wanted to do and I, I I think this was one of also the key driving points to me going to the UK was because I said to I said to my parents you know why would I spend one or two years doing something generalized when I already know what yeah, I want to do yeah, that's great and and these were the top universities as well so if I wanted to go to one of the top universities, it would have affected me in this way. But I think there are so many people who don't know what they want to do. And certainly I studied with a lot of people in engineering in the UK who now don't work in engineering at all, or they started working in engineering and then realized it really wasn't for them. And, you know, for those kind of people, I think it would have been advantageous to have done a more generalized thing and experience more things. But again, I just think it's down to the, sort of individual and and what they already know and or you know how confident they are about what they already know (laughs) totally so switching a bit to your role now what is it's probably hard to kind of pin down a a day-to-day but what are kind of your key responsibilities or a typical day at at the factory what's that like for you um yeah it's really difficult to generalize but I mean I always say it's basically it's funny this week I wrote down all the things I did every day in just, For your a, intern? Short, <laughs> <laughs> just a short list of what I had done every day because sometimes I feel like you can get to the end of the week and feel like you haven't achieved anything because you've not finished a specific project but when you look back and you think about what you've done you've done so many small things whether it's like organizational things fixing something helping someone it's basically just a lot of problem solving and uh, fire extinguishing or, um, you know, finding a bug and then trying to figure out a way to fix it or um, that might involve, you know, submitting a few tests. And, yeah, it's basically like a constant cycle of what you've just done and then building on it and always trying to make it better. But there are, of course, things that sit in the background that are more long-term projects Typically, these are more process related things that we, you know, we have a goal of completely automating a process, but we would do that just in the background when we have time or in between things. And yeah, I think it's in specific task wise, it's really difficult to say, but uh, I think the best way to describe it is just 
problem solving and trying to constantly just trying to make things better, whether that's improving the quality of the simulation, improving the the time it takes a user to even submit to a, a simulation or reduce the number of errors that they could probably possibly make based on errors that they've made that week (laughs) and things that you've had to fix for them and yeah we also work a lot with each of the subgroups in the aerodynamic department so um, because we work on the correlation if uh, for example the front wing group have just done a wind tunnel test but they didn't find that what they expected based on the CFD matched what happened in the wind tunnel we'll have a discussion about it Um, We'll double check that all the configurations were the same. We'll do some tests and then see if that applies also to other groups, if that would improve their simulations. So it's a lot of back and forth between error development and our group, but also working with the, the other CFD groups more on the software side to sort of improve the processes and things like that. Is there ever a world where like what you've simulated with CFD and what the team has simulated in the wind tunnel lines up, but then what you actually see at a race doesn't line up with that? I think it's really difficult because you have to understand the limitations of each of the environments. Right. So when you're simulating uh, on the computer, most of the time we would run sort of a more simplified physical model just for the fact pure fact that it, it takes less resource to run it. So it's quicker to get the results, but it might not be the most accurate simulation. And also we have to think about the regulations from the technical perspective. We have a limited number of geometries that we can simulate. We have a limited number of basically computational time that we can use. I think obviously a hot topic after what's happened to Red Bull recently. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so we can't always run the best possible simulation, but we kind of, make trade-offs within the setups to you know from what we've experienced with the correlation to the wind tunnel or something and then we have to think about okay what's happening in the wind tunnel maybe they didn't align but it's specifically something that we see constantly because of something uh, some wind tunnel specific geometry so you know we're in a closed environment that's obviously not what is happening in the simulation or what is happening on the track And then in the track, you have to think about things like crosswinds and things like this that are more just sort of uncontrolled environments compared to the wind tunnel and the CFD. So typically things don't align exactly, but when you consider the environment, it makes sense. And there's usually constant offsets between things. Um, But yeah, I would hope we're doing a pretty good job and and everything, and everything aligns. In terms of the cost cap, do you feel like that's had a real impact on kind of the day-to-day and the simulations you're able to run? Certainly, I I think we, we felt it when we moved up positions right before they, right before the period at which, um, you know, when you cross the DRS line to see if you're one second <laughs> behind, it was kind of like that point. We, just before they changed the, the the half of the year where it changed how many simulations you can run we had gone up a place uh and yeah we felt it and we had to discuss as a department you know what is the new strategy and and how do we tackle this and obviously you hope during the year that you improve and that you gain places and so you you kind of expect that um your your sort of flexibility in how many simulations you can run and that type of stuff is going to reduce but yeah, I think being the first year that it happened, it was, it's obviously something new to a, 
to adjust to. What are race weekends like for you? Like, do you watch races out of enjoyment or is it kind of like a job? I know you came into it as a fan, but what is it like these days for you? For me, I, yeah, I think, I think specifically this year as well, where, you know, things kind of shook up a little bit. I definitely watch as many races as I can. I don't wake up crazy early for the new ones, but I have the Mm -hmm. subscription and I'll wake up when I wake up and then I'll watch it on playback and I will not go on social media. (laughs) We do the same thing. (laughs) I will the night before text my mom and like the three friends I have that actually watch F1 and I'll be like (laughs) watching in delay. Do not just give me any spoilers just so that everyone is prepped um, not to ruin it for me. But it's frustrating, I think, as well, you know, since having worked at a team when something goes wrong it's really difficult to keep watching um yeah and uh you know before that I like you said I was a huge fan and I didn't specifically follow a certain team although I had certain favorite Australian drivers but (laughs) (laughs) um yeah it was it was more exciting to watch whereas now it's usually by the end of it I'm so riddled with anxiety I'm like oh my god thank god it's (laughs) over or like something you know it's not relaxing like thinking about all the work you're gonna have to do exactly (laughs) or or like looking at the other cars and thinking oh maybe that could help and you know we're not involved in the aerodynamic development but when we see problems with the correlation or if we see you know some performance um you know detrimental performance in in the design that we've been we've been discussing with the groups when you look at the other cars and you think you know just just a couple of weeks ago I took a photo of the tv and I sent it to this guy at work and I was like maybe this could help xyz and then he That's like so great. sent a screenshot back <laughs> with like little arrow in a circle around <laughs> so yeah I think it's just a different a different experience but yeah it's it's obviously when you dnf and things like that it's really difficult to watch I've definitely turned the tv off a couple yeah. of times this year so <laughs> do you, you have probably like a work, do you have like a work group chat going during races or does everyone kind of keep yeah no <laughs> I think everyone kind of just sometimes I will text one one of my friends at work and just be like are you watching and he'll go yeah <laughs> I can't believe this just happened or blah blah, oh, no. blah but I we tend to just recap on a Monday you know our group in particular have a Monday morning meeting to plan for the week and it's always a little bit of a race review for us but <laughs> naturally but yeah I I think everyone is it varies you know there are there are people in the company I know who aren't particularly F1 mad but they like the type of environment that you work in you know very fast paced very short turnaround uh, high pressure um, and visible return in terms of like you design something, you see it on the car and things like this, but they're not watching the races at the weekends. Maybe they'll just yeah. read the news, see what happened or something like that. So it, it definitely varies, but I think the majority of people who work in F1 are pretty into F1. Yeah, definitely into it, but it's probably hard not to watch it without like an analytical mind I know like film directors say that all the time about watching movies it's like I can't even do it for enjoyment anymore because I'm constantly analyzing like every scene and what was this like lighting or what I find really interesting is you know most of the people I know don't watch F1 don't know anything about it my girlfriend for example knew nothing about F1 before we met and now she is 
watching every race that I watch. She's watching it. <laughs> At one point during the summer, she was watching all the blah, blah, blah before the race. And I was like off somewhere else doing something. And she was like, I'm going to come and watch it. And I'm like, what have I created here? But I've what, created a monster. Yeah. You know, it's like your intern. She didn't, <laughs> she didn't understand the, like the hype about it. You know, if you speak to anyone who doesn't like F1, it's usually like, well, why are you watching cars going around in circles? And I think when you watch it with someone who has a more technical understanding, you can kind of explain like what is happening or what yeah. goes into it. I think when you understand like what goes into it and how much more there is than just people driving cars, it becomes a little bit more exciting or yeah. not even exciting. I think it's just the understanding just brings such a different, I mean, it's just like watching football and not understanding offside or like for me, rugby, I don't understand the rules of rugby, so I don't find it interesting. That's I how I feel about same. American football. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the same thing, you know. I think it's what I guess helps pull people in. It's just the understanding. And I think we've talked about this before on a podcast, but what's so cool about Formula One is like there feels like there's no ceiling to how much you can understand and how much you can learn because of everything that's behind it, because of all the data. Like other sports have that to a certain degree, but I don't feel like they have that as much as F1 does. So, And also because the rules are constantly changing. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I don't know all the rules, but <laughs> it's, you know, every now and then there's rule changes and then you have to learn how it works or even just like the race formats, you know, with these new sprints going in and things like that. I, you kind of have to check what's going on all the time and it's it's not like a sport where there's rules like tennis and then the rules never change and the most exciting thing is that now there's Hawkeye or something like that it's it's always changing and and not just the the sporting regulations but the technical regulations and the shape of the car and and you know the drivers are changing and um well the teams are changing as well which is what's going to happen to us and and so it makes it yeah, there's a lot of different inputs that, that can kind of make it more exciting. Speaking of that news with Sauber and um, Audi, was that something you guys saw coming? What's sort of the feeling within the team on all of that? Um, saw coming. I mean, as an employee, we didn't know anything. Um, yeah. We obviously were told shortly before the press release and things like that, but um we everyone was gossiping internally just as everyone was gossiping in the media you know we knew what everyone else knew um and yeah I think from what I've heard from people no one has any negative feelings towards it it's mostly just excitement because for us it means more investment mm -hmm. um you know there are people that I work with who were there before we were BMW and so they've wow. already seen what it was like when you know a works sort of company came in and and took over the team and and how things changed and from their perspective we've we've had discussions as well and they think it can only be positive and yeah I think for me it's super exciting because this is my first job in Formula One and then this will be my first time in a proper fully fledged works team as it sounds like it's gonna be um so yeah, I'm I'm excited because I think it means that we can only get better if we're uh yeah, if we're having more investment and backing like that. But time will tell and I think it's yeah. just one of those things as well. Like, you know, we're in a rule change, the start of a rule change just now and 
um, when things change up again with the engine, who knows what will happen and, and where you'll be in the field, regardless of who your engine supplier is or what team you are. Um, we could have Red Bull at the back. We could have Red Bull at the front. <laughs> you just never know, which anyway makes it more exciting. So there's just like a few layers of, yeah, it'll be good, good change and, and exciting for us to see also how it changes internally. In terms of sort of your schedule as the year goes on, do you find that your kind of busiest seasons are during the off season or is it during the season when you need to be running new simulations for potential upgrades or uh, kind of how does that flow work? I think it really depends which department you're in. Um, for example, now I think people are really gearing up towards releasing final designs for the first car for next year. And so now is a really busy time for some groups, but for what we do, it's, you know, they're always testing a car at every point during the year. So we kind of have a pretty steady workflow to, to keep up with. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's sort of department based, even I would say group based because there are <clears throat> some groups who have shorter lead times on, on parts that they design and some who have longer lead times. So yeah, it's, it's a bit varied, but you know, there's not, there's not one point in the year where people really slow down. <laughs> and I think as well, it, it depends also how you're doing. I think depending on how you're doing is when you decide to sort of like let go a little bit of the current year's car and start focusing more on mm -hmm. the next year's car. I think we heard half say that they basically didn't do anything last year for for last year's car and they just focused on this year's car because they evaluated that you know it would give them a better return and so that it you know it's clearly different from that perspective and also how many employees you have I'm sure there are some teams who have enough people to work on both cars full out at, at mm -hmm. one go and yeah I think it's it's probably quite varied across across the teams as well as you know within a team. Wow yeah. that's so early that they need to be already submitting maybe finalized designs for next year's car. Yeah, I think when you think about like if you make your parts, maybe you have more control over production processes and things like that. If you outsource specific parts or they may not even be being made in the same country that your team is and you have to factor in like shipping and, and probably production errors and all sorts of things. And yeah, I think it, it's not rare. it's not rare to find first race people having their employees on the plane with spare parts or late parts or something like that. So. <laughs> That's super interesting. We were always curious how involved drivers are in the car, in the testing and all that. It probably depends on the driver, but in your experience, how has that been working with Alfa Romeo drivers? I mean, from our side, we aren't involved with the drivers at all, but certainly, you know, there's been a lot of work done on our simulator this year. And there, I often see like internal meeting notes where like, oh, the drivers will be in this week and working on the simulator. And, you know, they're, they're here quite frequently considering, um, <clears throat> yeah, I guess no one, neither of them live in Switzerland. So they're here <laughs> quite, quite often to be testing and um, certainly we, you know, we get copies, everyone in the company gets copies of the notes at the end of every session and things like this from the driver debriefs. And yeah, they're always, you know, giving as much feedback as they can. 
um, and really pushing because obviously they want the best car as well. So it's really interesting when you have, um, you know, a rookie driver and an experienced driver and, and you see at the start of the season how kind of like the volume of their uh, debrief notes is, is really different. <laughs> and then as the, as the year goes on, there's like a little bit more confidence and rapport and things like that. But yeah, specifically with our group, we don't, we don't um, deal with the drivers at all, but yeah, we see them around the factory sometimes. So I know they're there and doing stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good that they're involved. Women's health is so important and balanced hormones are key for that. We've been loving hormone harmony from happy mammoth. Who's committed to making women's lives easier. Hormone Harmony contains adaptogens, science-backed herbal extracts that help the body adapt to stressors like hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. We love it because it helps us maintain optimal hormone levels and supports our mood and general well-being. There is a reason that one bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. For a limited time, you can get 15% off on your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use code F1R the girls at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code F1R the girls for 15% off today. To switch gears a little bit, and I might embarrass you because we have a list of all of your amazing extracurriculars, so to speak. So for those that don't know, besides doing her day-to-day job, which already sounds like a lot, Christina is a director at Racing Pride. She's an FIA Girls on Track ambassador, a community outreach volunteer for the Female Drive, which we follow and love and an advisory panel member on the Fearless Female Women's Sports Collective. So it sounds like you're already really busy with work. Why are you so interested in doing all of these other things? Like for us, it's so great to see, but tell us a little bit why you're so passionate about that. You know, if I, just for example, what I was saying before about how when I was growing up, there wasn't a lot of information about how to get into F1. And, you know, I certainly see that it's the same because I know that from the fact that there are young girls messaging me on LinkedIn and asking how can I get into F1 and you know I just kind of feel like how have we not how have we not fixed this and how have we not made it better how have we not made it more accessible and if not me then who and I always you know when you tell someone you work in F1 it's kind of like, oh, really? And then people are super excited, even though all I do is sit behind a computer all day. Like at the end of the day, it's a great, exciting application and you're in a sport, which makes it more exciting. But I probably don't do a very different job to somebody who does the same job, but not in F1. But it's it's right. that F1 factor, you know? And I always say that I what I would love to do is to make change by using that that sort of attention that you can grab by just saying that you work in F1. And um, I think it opens some doors to, you know, make change and speak to be, speak to people about making change. And particularly, you know, from my experiences as a gay woman working in F1, um, it was something that I found really, really bizarre, especially, you know, thinking, am I really the only out person in my team, you know, where, I don't know, 350 employees or something. There must be somebody else. And it makes you think about, you know, the motorsport culture as a whole. I'm not saying, absolutely not saying that my team doesn't have a great culture, but we see what's been happening in the media this year, especially around fan culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think fan culture is just a reflection of the general motorsport culture because 
uh, one sort of allows the other or gives that's such a good point gives yeah. permission to the other and I always you know think to myself how you know this can't be possible and, and I really want to make change so that the environment becomes better so that people feel like they can be you know their authentic selves and I, and I certainly do know people who are not out in their work environments within F1 because they don't feel comfortable because there is a banter culture which is you know making them feel uncomfortable making them feel like you know so often when you want to work in F1 it's it's a very long time dream you've always loved F1 it's like your dream job and why would you put that at risk and and we're so aware that for every person that has a job in F1 there's like a hundred other people that want Mm -hmm. that job and and yeah and so why would you if you really felt uncomfortable in your environment why would you put yourself in a position that perhaps meant that it it sort of put that into jeopardy and so that's why I got involved with um racing pride and that's grown absolutely immensely over the last couple of years you know partnering with Aston Martin and and uh Alpine as well and you know we always make sure that we're doing work internally um and making a difference for the employees you know changing and helping the teams change their their policies their internal policies to be more inclusive and and doing sort of um you know sensitivity training and and not even just that but really especially my role when we have these training sessions is to just discuss with the employees how it feels to be someone from the LGBTQ plus community, not just in motorsport, but in a work environment in general, how, you know, you don't just come out once in your life. Every time you start a new job, you basically have to come out again. Every time you enter a new group of people, you basically have to come out all over again. And, and we've made huge progress and we've had really great feedback. And then there's obviously been a lot more public activation, which has been, you know, making it visible that LGBTQ plus people as fans are certainly welcome in this space. And I think that's that's also really something important for the sport. And, and you know, there's obviously there's a lot of intersections between being gay and being a woman in motorsport because they're just not the norm in motorsport still and this is why I I think you know both are equally as important to me but certainly we always say about anything whether it's getting more more women into sport in general or getting more engineers in general or getting more women into into motorsport um, it's always about sort of getting at the younger groups and this is specifically what um, Motorsport Australia are doing and and Motorsport UK as well. But I've been working with Motorsport Australia on the Girls on Track program and we had a really great um, first year of launching our mentoring and career development program with a program at the Australian Grand Prix this year. And my team like opened up the garage and and showed them around and they got to go down the pit lane and stuff. And and we have had stories where people, these young girls have said to us, I didn't think that motorsport was an environment for me. And so I've decided to start taking a different route in the subjects that I pick or or the, the degrees that I've put down as my preferences. And then at the end of these programs, just said this is definitely where I want to be and I've seen that I can be here now and it's so 
amazing but at the same time it's such a shame that it takes like you know only 25 girls could be part of this program because you know we have limited funding we have limited resources but if you think that if we could as a sport just do more to increase that visibility how much of a wider effect we would have compared to those 25 girls I mean it's so necessary and you see you see the impact and you hear those stories um, and it's the same thing with, with Racing Pride. Certainly, um, we've had people tell us that they've decided to come out within their workplace because now they feel more comfortable and they feel like that their their team really support them and that they have allies and that the environment is safe enough for them. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, I think on a, on a more wider sporting context, the reason I started working with the female drive was because, well, I mean, everyone always talks about, um, you know, not just women working in motorsport, but also fan culture. And I think the female driver specifically working on a few projects um, within different roles within the sport. So we're looking at launching a research project on, on sort of what are we doing as a sport to let women know that they are, you know, welcome to be involved in the sport in any capacity. So I'm talking fans, I'm talking employees, I'm talking drivers, I'm talking officials, yeah. anything. Why, what are we doing that's blocking that? And why haven't we changed it? Or what have we tried? And things like this. There's a lot of exciting things that are being done by all these organizations like Motorsport Australia and the Girls on Track program and Racing Pride. And it kind of makes you think, you know, and, and I see this as an individual within a team, if I hear something that is maybe not appropriate language to be using in a workplace around LGBTQ plus issues or certainly gender related issues, I always feel like I'm the person that has to say something. Mm -hmm. And too often the burden is always put on the person who is already sort of kind of under the microscope. And, you yeah. know, that's what these organizations are sort of taking upon themselves to fix. But I think as a sport, we really need to question what are we doing on a more global scale to avoid these things and, and to certainly make these situations better. And yeah, I think we had We Race as One and then I don't, I don't know, there seems to be a lot going on in the background, but as a fan, you don't really see much from it. You kind of mm -hmm. saw um, the, the camaraderie of the drivers when they would stand at the front of the, of the, um, of the grid at the start of the race with the we races one banner but what is the what are the tangible things that that f1 are doing to sort of accompany that and, and this is what i yeah. would really like to see more of and i don't know what you guys think also as fans like have you do you think it was something that you really saw a return on or that it seemed more um here's something that we're going to discuss and then didn't really yeah, see, see something back from. I think it's been really great for us and we, with our community, I think we've seen how much of an opening and a space there is for more voices, especially more female voices and people who are of, you know, different non-traditional F1 backgrounds, you know, and I think it has been really amazing for us to get those messages and see similar to the ones that you've, you've gotten I, I really liked your point about how sort of one allows the other, like the motorsport culture allows the fan culture and vice versa. And I hope I'm optimistic that with the drive to survive effect and, you know, more fans coming into the sport that that helps propel the culture in motorsport as well. 
I think we have a long way to go. And even if we're only like 25 girls at a time with some of these things, like it's a start and it takes time. But I don't know. I, I generally feel optimistic from all the work that we've been doing and that we've been, you know, seeing other people doing. But I know that there's a super, super long way to go. And I think all of your points are super well taken. And I, I hope that F1 more broadly and whether that's the drivers or the FIA or whoever, like does a lot more to show fans with some of this stuff rather than fans having to bring it into the sport. Hmm. Yeah. And not to be overly optimistic and I hate that I'm saying this, but it's like, it always has to start with one person or one group. So the fact that it's you being a part of so many different groups and us talking about it, like it's going to have to start somewhere. And these things take time. Like I used to work in a huge corporate company in finance. So it was definitely male dominated, but you have to see that like, it'll happen. It just takes time. And there's no reason to give up if you don't see the rewards right away. Yeah. I think this is all really, I always say like, you know, I don't want to leave the sport until it's better. And, you know, certainly I have my moral moments where I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I working in this sport? You know, I I find it really difficult to see that we, we do race in countries um, like Saudi Arabia and, and that we don't, you know, I see a lot of discussion that, oh, you know, it's important that we go and we try and um, bring light to these issues and, and try and, you know, influence the, the change, basically. But I don't, I don't feel like I see enough of it to justify it. And certainly I can't imagine how I would feel as a gay woman on a race team that was having to go to those races. Like I certainly mm-hmm. wouldn't feel comfortable. And I just wonder whether these things are thought about ahead of time, um, or all these things are even considered or whether they, yeah, I don't know. It's just really difficult. And I've had those moments, but then I always know, I always say to myself that if I don't stay, nothing will change. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's really what keeps me there is because I know that you can really make change from the inside. Even if it's as mm-hmm. simple as just, you know, there's four women in my office and, you know, just being there and just walking down the hallway and sort of normalizing the fact that there's women in the office is also important. It's just as important as like trying to get more women into the sport. It's just being there and being present and changing everyone's idea that that that's not normal. And, you know, for example, I've been for, I've been at my team for four and a half years now. And for the last three and a half years, I've been trying to, you know, just discuss with the company about getting a women's bathroom in in my building because the only women's bathrooms are on the ground floor which are for the event area and technically as employees we're not really meant to use them and wow to me it was just like how how was this building constructed or even designed and it was accepted that we would put men's bathrooms on every floor of the building did somebody therefore have the idea that our oh, women wouldn't work in engineering or women wouldn't work in aerodynamics or, or what was it? Because it's the wind tunnel specific building. So that's where the aerodynamics department is. And, you know, actually two days ago, I had a meeting after, like I've said, three and a half years of chasing this. And two days ago, I had the meeting where we've actually seen the plans from the architect and it's happening. The budget has been allocated and we will have a bathroom by next March to August and by exactly but by that point I would have been at the company for five years and 
you know, and in that time we've had one woman in the office who was pregnant and obviously had to go quite a distance to the bathroom. And, you know, it's just crazy that these things are happening. And I think if I'm not there and I didn't stand up for that, who would have? And it's such a small thing when you think about it, but sometimes even without knowing why you feel uncomfortable in an environment. And even if that's something as small as because you see that your facilities, the facilities that are provided for you aren't equal to what the men are provided for, then, you know, that could be something that just sits there in the back of your mind. And it's like, okay, well, there's no bathroom for me. So I wasn't expected to be here, or I'm not wanted to be here. And then it's kind of like all these little things. And I think if you're not there, you can't make an impact. And yeah, so changing the world one bathroom at a time but (laughs) one bathroom or 25 girls at a time (laughs) exactly exactly it's but it's all these small changes that hopefully like you said accumulate and and make a bigger change so totally we admire you so much and admire all of the work that you're doing and being that person who's both in your organization and in f1 just really trailblazing for people who are coming after you. So on that note, just to wrap up, we'd love if you have any advice or thoughts for people who might be listening who are interested in F1, maybe to work or just want to become more of a fan of F1 and maybe haven't always felt included in those spaces, if you have any advice for our listeners. Uh, I think in terms of just working in F1 or, or if you know you want to work in F1 and you don't know what area, like I said before, just try things or, you know, if it's as simple as watching some YouTube videos just to get a feeling or downloading a piece of software just to try it out. Buying a book. Yeah, (laughs) buying a book that might change your life. (laughs) I think it's so important just to to try things and like anything in life, like you don't know if you like a food until you try it. And it's exactly the same thing with all the possibilities of the careers. And, you know, in terms of being a fan, I think if you feel unsure about where you fit in as a fan – there are so many groups and like podcasts like this one where, you know, there are communities of people coming together. And I think once you find your community, then you find, you know, a safe space and a space where you can exchange with people that is not in the cruel, cruel world of <laughs> F1 social media. So, yeah. you know, there's, there's space for everyone. And, and for sure, I think it would be really great to see, you know, more fans and more diverse fans that are then helping to also change the face of the sport because, you know, at the end of the day, the the culture of the sport is driven by the people who follow it and how the sport can make money. So if we attract the right people as fans, then we can make more change within. What a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Christina. We really appreciate it. This has been so wonderful. Thank you for having me. So fun. Thanks.